0: San Francisco today with Jeff Barr who is the inspiration behind the uh, wonderful book Bringing Down the House and uh, also the movie 21. Yep. Uh, he's written a book himself uh, called The House Advantage and uh, is now working at Twitter as uh, Senior Director of Analytics. Yeah, Jeff, it's, it's really good that we, we got to meet. I we know we have a common friend, Neil Robinson.
1: Yep. Yeah, Neil uh, has been spending a lot of time in Australia so <laughs> I'm sure he's made some good contacts there.
0: I think one of the problems of spending too much time in Australia is you just actually don't want to go anywhere else. That's
1: what I hear. I've still <laughs> never been, but yeah, that's what I hear.
0: So you, you were a member of the uh, the now infamous uh, MIT blackjack team. Yeah. And and that was that was the mid nineties, wasn't
1: it? I mean it all kinda of started in ninety four and went to two thousand one. Um, and, you know, it was basically seven years. Uh, A lot of people think it was like a lot shorter than that, obviously, because that's kind of like what the movie and the book portray, but it was about seven years stretch of time.
0: So what, what did playing Blackjack teach you about data and decision making, the area that you're so involved with now?
1: I mean, I think like Blackjack was sort of like the ultimate in big data before big data was even a thing. Like, you know, it's this very closed system where all the decisions can be made. Uh, via data and via objective you know j- objective numbers um, it's been simulated out like blackjack hands have been simulated out so you know at any time what the right decision is at the blackjack table and because of that it's this perfect um, way to sort of illustrate uh, a lot of the cognitive biases that um, overcome us when we make decisions um, because it's such a clear right and wrong in blackjack and yet people still don't follow the right and wrong, even if they know it, and it's because of cognitive biases. So I think it is a very interesting sort of system that really helps um, people understand how to make better decisions via data.
0: Right, and uh, I mean, this this area of cognitive bias, I mean, essentially if machines were making all the decisions in a blackjack game. Uh, they would never lose, essentially, would they? Well, they
1: would lose because inherently there's a di- they're at a disadvantage. I mean, it depends on, like, if they were allowed to count cards perfectly, i.e., like, bet optimally and whatnot, over time they would they would not lose. If they, this is right one of the differences
0: with Blackjack, that unlike, say, Craps or other games, well, it has a memory.
1: Right, so Blackjack is the only game that in the casino that's subject to something called conditional probability, meaning what you see impacts what you're going to see. So if you take all four aces out of a deck of cards, and then try to deal yourself blackjack, you can't because there's no more aces left. Whereas in roulette, you know, people always will say like, oh, there's been seven reds rolled, in, you know, seven reds in a row, you should bet black, but that's not true, like that history means nothing.
0: So you're um, telling me that blowing on dice doesn't actually work? <laughs> I mean, you know, the,
1: the reason that that gambling is an attractive thing for people is because you, you believe that there is some higher power beyond, like if you just believe in pure math when you gamble, it's not going to be very fun. It's just going to be like, it's basically like if you and I played a game and I said, hey, we're going to flip a coin. If it's heads, you pay me a dollar. If it's tails, I'll pay you 50 cents. You wouldn't want to play that game at all, right? But that's essentially what casinos are doing. Maybe not with quite that big an advantage, but they're playing, you know, you're playing a losing game. So in order to enjoy it, you have to fundamentally believe there's some way you can beat it that's not there or some ethos around like beating the system or beating, you know, it's... It's like this, uh, I was I was doing a television show once, and the host, uh, we were talking about Macau and all the gambling that's happening there. And the host asked me, like, why are Asians, or the Chinese specifically, such big gamblers? And a lot of that, I think, is because of this, like there is, and culturally, and like the, you know, Buddhism and all that kind of stuff, this like feeling of a higher being that can help and they're very superstitious they're very numbers oriented yeah um and that drives them to you know like gambling maybe more than than other people
0: That's is i had not thought about it that way i mean I, I used to live in hong kong so i spent a lot of time in macau yeah and it, it is macau's like vegas stripped away of all of the stuff that vegas does to pretend it's not about gambling
1: right no no but that's the macau is all about gambling right yeah. that's and that's you know yeah, that's good. the difference between macau and vegas Vegas now makes more than fifty percent of its revenue from non-gambling. And EDM, yeah, or EDM <laughs> or restaurants or, you know, whatever. It's it makes a lot of money on um, non-gambling uh, revenue.
0: Um, so you know, we spoke a little bit about cognitive biases. So when a when a human being is, you know, faced with the obvious choices to make in different situations that you can do now if you have some strategy with blackjack, what are some of the I guess the mental holdups that people have that stop them from making the right decision?
1: I just think we're all you know, we're all emotional in how we make decisions and we're all influenced by very emotional things. Like the concept of loss aversion I mm. think is very common where People are afraid to lose. They don't like understand upside and gain. They're just afraid to lose. So it forces them into decisions that they wouldn't normally make otherwise. There's, you know, the no- there's also notions of like endowment bias, which is a similar thing to loss aversion. Where, like, if I uh, if I own something, or like if I have, uh, you know, I- I'm not willing to take a risk when I own something. Then if I didn't own it, sort of like it's it's like the reason that companies stop innovating they grow because you know they were willing to take risks but once they get a certain uh, level of users let's say they don't want to lose those users so they're not willing to take the same types of risks like a company like Apple doesn't care they, they go out and they'll they'll change things and they'll change UI and they don't care they know that like in order to grow they're gonna have to keep innovating Fa- Facebook similar like they know that they've got to take risks to like continue to grow and, and they do they go and they buy things for lots of money that end up helping them innovate. So I mean I think the notion that um, as human beings we're, we're, we're afraid of loss, um, there's also just other things that we convince ourselves of like there's one common bias that I think about a lot which is confirmation bias which is when people tend to only believe or remember details that confirm a bias that they have or confirm an opinion or a hypothesis that they have already and it causes them to make bad decisions.
0: This is the ultimate example of the Facebook filter bubble, right?
1: I'm not familiar with that. You know,
0: that. they, they said that the, the problem with social media is that it just shows you opinions of yeah of people who you've got similar yeah. views to. Yeah, and
1: I think that's how, that happens to some degree on Twitter now, um, and it's just generally happening all over the place, right? Like, I mean, this whole concept that Trump's pushing through of fake news, and, you know, it is very, very hard these days to get, a, like, a legitimate, you know, objective point of view. I mean, even this whole, like, Sweden thing, which is hilarious, <laughs> right? I mean, that he... Talked about what happened in you know in a speech. He said what happened last night in Sweden. So clearly he was misremembering something or whatnot. But now like there's still a lot of people that believe that there is an immigrant problem in Sweden. And then if you look at the you know more of the liberal media, they say there's no problem in Sweden. So what's what's the truth, right? Um, I don't know. I mean that's I think it's it's a challenge that we're going to face as a as a as a country or as a society is to try to get real news, and, and that that's like why I think Twitter is so important because Twitter does allow, you know, equal points of view on, on these types of things. And then it allows people to sort of filter that in themselves.
0: So a key part of being data-driven, like you talk about, it, is the ability to make decisions from a place of evidence rather than emotion. Right. Uh, but, but can you, I mean, can you be too driven by facts or, 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 or I mean, does emotion have any, uh any relevant information I know you're not a big fan of uh, um, you know of of, of, uh, Blink and (laughs) and the Gladwell theory about intuition I think
1: I think people don't understand what like data driven decision making really means And what it means is that you're going to try to make decisions as much as you can based on evidence and data but you're never gonna have a perfect data set to understand that specific decision. And so you're gonna have times where like, you're not sure if the data that you're looking at, or it's it's not, it's never as perfect as Blackjack. And that's kind of like one of the big interesting things. I think whenever I I give a speech and someone asks a question like, I think that's the best question people always ask is like, so Blackjack is like this perfect system, how do I, have that same sort of rigor in something that isn't a perfect system like that and, and the reality is you, you, you can't hmm. but you've got to strive I think I think if in this day and age if you don't strive to try to have that at the core of you know your like at the center of how you make decisions then you're going to lose I mean like someone asked me the other day about like you know companies that you know aren't like looking at it this way because I I, I always believe that like the best way to be successful around data-driven decision making is to have it like permeate all facets of the of the organization like from the CEO down to like the whatever the interns or whatever all believe this Um,
0: how how do you do that I mean I I know for example that Amazon one of the ways they've tried to do that is that you, you kind of PowerPoint you have to bring stacks of data to a meeting to get a decision made do they do similar things at Twitter? Um, I mean,
1: yeah, I think at Twitter we are definitely very data driven. Um, I think, I think the way you do it is you have to like, you have to have some wins. You have to have, and you have to also be able to like, practically speak with leadership and make leadership understand, you know, what role this data should play and how they make decisions.
0: Right. But there's a real art because I mean, if you just sort of take a whole stack of data uh, it doesn't mean anything to anyone and if you apply an analysis to it I mean that's also your potential framing of the data
1: yeah I so I mean basically what you're saying is and, and I, I always I think about this a lot which is like um, you know, data analysis should not be narrative driven yeah but it has to be narrative driven to be compelling
0: well, this is the thing. We as humans want to see the story, right? But in, in applying the story, we sometimes skew the story. I mean, I think it's fine result. if
1: you actually look at the data and create the narrative based on the data versus like finding the data that supports a narrative, which is actually <laughs> what happens. That's what happens a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you'd be this surprised. It's like Maslow's hammer. Yeah. So it's like, uh, I, I do think it's interesting though, because you know you'll present data sometimes without opinion, without narrative. And then people will make their own narratives around it. But if you become too prescriptive in what your narrative is, you're not really being true to the data. So I do think it's a very sensitive or, or an art um, to do.
0: What what behaviors have you seen in, in companies or managers or leaders that encourage the right kinds of data-driven cultures? That's
1: a good question. Um, I think it's like, well, one, I think you have to be... You have to make, I think, I think one is like to be very cross collaborative. So in other words, like it's not data in a silo. It's basically like data that works with people around the company. So you're always looking for opportunities to get like a team that has data or does analytics involved in different things early on. Right. If you don't get them involved early on, they're not useful. Right. They're not like it's not useful to continue to ask someone for things like when your decision's already made and companies do this. so you got to get involved early the other thing is you got to be you got to challenge the people that do the analysis you got to challenge them to do the right type of analysis to do the right to ask the right questions to you know to uh like drive the right decisions
0: so this is actually a key leadership skill for the 21st century the ability to i guess understand the process of collecting and analyzing data enough that you can push back on the people that are doing. It.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think there are like some basic things, you know, this is what we were talking about, like causal causation versus correlation or yeah. sample size or stationarity. There are a bunch of very simple concepts that I think that if you are a manager in this day and age at any kind of a company or a strategic thinker in any kind of company that you need to understand these concepts. So that you can utilize your data scientists, your analytics people, your data people uh, to their fullest by actually being able to push them into the right types of, of, you know, like just knowing probably five to ten very basic concepts around the stuff will will certainly help you. Uh,
0: Especially when you have to explain to a board or 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 potentially to a court. Well, I mean, that's
1: the challenge. (laughs) The challenge is being able to, to. like talk to data scientists and lead them in the right direction but then also to be able to talk to the c-suite or the board or whatever um, and take that data and convince them of a decision based on
0: that. There was some really interesting research that was in the Harvard Business Review a couple of months back where uh, they were talking about cognitive noise and that essentially that you know when you look at experts in a whole variety of fields whether they're you know software engineers trying to estimate time or surveyors or even sentencing judges you can ask the same question on different days with the same facts and get completely different estimates or answers right and and essentially the authors were arguing that algorithms are much better suited to make the vast majority of human decisions Um,
1: yeah i mean i think it's humans we're just bad at making decisions i mean we we are like whether it's like you know social decisions like who to marry or something like that (laughs) or or whether it's like business decisions about like what industry or what deals to do we're just we're bad and so like data helps us become better at it
0: well but, but isn't the logical conclusion to that is that if we're bad at making decisions and data helps us make better decisions at some point won't machines be making most of the decisions in, in a company well I don't. and at what point what will the humans be doing again like i think
1: in an ideal world you might we might be able to do that but i think it's we're a long way from being able to do that because i think that even though we have lots of data the data's got to be like like you have to like a human has to ask the right questions of these things right Right. and the problem is with a lot of these types of decisions is you don't get to make them a million times you only get to make them once or twice and that like framework with which to evaluate that decision is never going to be perfect so i mean i think that yes we'll be able to have a lot better um tools for decision-making, but I, I do think humans will still play a big role in the, that type of decision-making.
0: I guess if you look at, at a product level at least, I mean, something like Twitter, what you see is determined by an algorithm, uh, but that algorithm is still designed by people.
1: Yeah, and optimized by people, and the results, you know, are, are driven and, and analyzed by people, so yeah. Is it
0: quite a political thing, the design of algorithms in organizations? What do you mean by a political thing? Well, I'm just, I'm just, you know, as someone from the outside, you use a lot of these data-driven products, uh, driven by machine learning and algorithms. Yeah. It, it sort of feels like they're, um, they're sort of omniscient, you know, they're all-knowing. In, in terms of how, like, there is some perfect way that they're making these decisions, but I guess when you sort of see things leak out, you realize that it's often very human decisions that have determined, you know, how these algorithms. Yeah, are, I, I are definitely going.
1: think so because I mean, I think also like there's just even. Even if you say like, oh, we're gonna create this algorithm to optimize for the user, you know, what does that even mean? Like, what are you trying to optimize for? The the amount of time they spend, the amount of ads you can show them, or like the amount of times that they will come back because they know there's good content. So these are all things that, you know, you have to sort of, again, like, there's no perfect answer here. You're gonna be shown like our portfolio of different like metrics that move, and you've got to decide based on those results, like what you want to do or how you want to tweak things.
0: I thought it was a really interesting story about how you came to be at Twitter because you actually created one of the world's first companies that were looking at, essentially at the uh, the quantified self applied to work. Yeah, you were trying to quantify productivity. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the origins of? Uh, yeah, I mean, 10. I think
1: I think like uh, so Neil um, Robertson, who is our common friend. Um, he had the kind of idea to like gamify work Um, and it was based on some of the stuff that he was doing at Trotta the company that he had started this is
0: early on right this was like yeah
1: and so he he gave me sort of a a four or five page PowerPoint with sort of some ideas around this and for me like I was interested in sort of the the way that that real metrics could marry with this idea of sort of like gamification Um, and then I, I became even more interested in the fact that like oh there's all these Systems of record that people do work in that have APIs that are sitting in the cloud that we can access the data especially and like
0: especially programmers, right? That well,
1: a- yeah, I mean, certainly programmers with things like GitHub or Pivotal Tracker or Jira, like all these types of things. Actually, like yeah, they they are. Um, but I think you know, so we worked on that for about three years, and and we definitely made some mistakes um, in terms of what we were trying to do. Um, I still think there's a big opportunity there. Um, Twitter acquired my team and, and the tech we'd built. Um, and have been working on it. A uh, small group at, at Twitter is still working on it. Uh, but generally, like I think there's still a big opportunity to change the way that generally that like... I mean, just when you manage someone or when you manage a team or you manage a project, there's a bunch of important things that you need to understand and you need to be better at. And you can do that well if you start with the fact that there's data about that. So simply just even understanding like what people are working on and having a good way to visualize that built on top of something like Jira or GitHub would be a great tool for managers, right? Right. And then taking that, once you get that visualization or once you get that transparency built up, then all of a sudden you can start building you know things on top that track you know, people's behaviors or people's like be, like work patterns and when they vary, where their work patterns vary a lot, is that a signal that that person might be struggling that you might need to talk to that person? Right now, you know, the most common best management practice is like walking around, right? The idea of just walking around the office and talking to people and seeing how they're doing and doing one-on-ones. And I think that's great, but I also think that in those situations, you're relying on an explicit signal, right? An explicit signal is only as good as the signal that people are telling you, right? So, implicit signal understanding, like how people work, can always be you know, a very good complement to explicit signal.
0: It feels like that we should have a lot more data sets now than we did ten years ago. I mean, uh, I mean, beside the fact that we're all using cloud-based systems, most people are using some sort of virtualized work environment. Yeah. Uh, so you, 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 know, we can see the applications yeah, I mean, people I use. The, and
1: I, think the, I think the, I think the challenge is. How do you accomplish something like that without making it feel like it's Big Brother, right. without making people, like, rebel against it? Because we, tra-
0: th- we actually tried to do this in the industrial era. I mean, there was Taylorism, where you t- did time and motion studies about yeah. how long people should spend doing a task, and it ended up creating horrible work environments. Yeah,
1: and it, the classic example of this is when Microsoft did, like, lo- like, K- K, you know, K, the lines of code, like and, <laughs> and did, they did a lot of, made a lot of, you know, uh, human, human capital decisions based on that kind of, like, that kind of stuff and it was it was horrible it created the wrong and so i think that that is a challenge when you get into a situation like we're trying to create a 10 xer, or where there is natural resistance to this for good reason
0: yeah one of the one of the other things that you mentioned you were thinking about is i guess the you know how you can leverage some of this thinking and approaches to run experiments Could could you Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm,
1: I'm definitely interested. I mean, like it's not, you know, it's all. I think most people that are in the tech world know that companies like Twitter and Facebook and Google are constantly doing experiments. You know, they're constantly doing A-B tests on products. They're not just launching products and new features in the wild without actually having tested yeah. on a subset. And with, you know, hundreds and millions of hundreds of millions and in some cases billions of users. You can do some pretty good tests with a small subset of that user and get a, a pretty good information. But, you know, doing experiments in the real world is not easy, like like a restaurant. Like a restaurant wants to do experimentation to figure out, like, how they should change. You know, I've been watching a lot of Chef's Table recently, the, right. the Netflix show. And sort of, like, understanding that concept of, like, you know, wanting to try and new dishes or new concepts or you know, all those types of things, like, how do you create, um, and someone came up to me yesterday at Twitter and was asking me a little bit about, like, you know, what advice I would give to, like, you know, new entrepreneurs and that kind of thing, and and the biggest thing that you want to do is be able to figure out ways to experiment with things quickly and cheaply so that you can learn quickly and cheaply, and it's hard because as an entrepreneur or as as a startup, you typically don't have you know, 300 million user base or, you know, 2 billion user base to, to, to go after, to try things out on, right? Yeah. So your ability to experiment and learn quickly is hard, so you have to figure out more creative ways to do that.
0: I mean, this is actually, in terms of acquiring companies, is one of the great advantages, of course, that Facebook and Twitter and, and Google has, is because they can actually see from their own user data how certain applications are spreading quickly, probably yeah. more than external investors would.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, one of the great things about working at Twitter is we are sitting on a lot of really interesting data and there's a lot of really interesting questions that we can ask of the data. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a good point. And, and what, I, what I guess like I'm more interested in is, and, and you know, they people talk about this concept <laughs> of small data, right? Like what are, what are the opportunities in the small data world to actually go after things like experimentation and to actually try to understand causation better than people do right now what,
0: what do you see is the difference between big data and small data what do you mean by that uh,
1: I mean small data is like I mean there's a lot of different definitions I guess like I, I probably am not the expert in it but I guess what I how I would call it is like when you're in situations where you're we're you're not you're not dealing with like you know millions of millions of data points where you're dealing with like hundreds or right. tens or whatever and you're trying to make the best decision Based on that small set of sample size,
0: this this issue of correlation and causation is going to become more more challenging now that we're relying um, on machine learning, because the, some of these systems are like black boxes, and you know the, the machine's making inferences about things. It doesn't really yeah. care about causation. We don't really fully understand you know why it's learning. Well,
1: I was, I was like speaking at a um, at Avaya, the company Avaya, uh, yeah. there in there. Their CTO, who I thought was really interesting, is also their head of, of corp, corp dev, is also their really? CTO. Oh, wow. Yeah, this guy, Laurent, seems very sharp. But he was speaking before me and kind of talking, laying the, the framework for my talk, which was on analytics. And he was saying something that was interesting, and I don't know if I agreed with it, and I talked to him about it afterwards, that he believes that humans are the ones that have to understand causation. Yeah. And, like, the machines are telling you correlation. But the problem is humans are bad at understanding causation, and we
0: was his argument that we we need to understand causation for our own human reasons.
1: No, his 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 argument was that machines are always going to be able to tell you correlation. Yeah, and unless you have human interaction, I think he was saying that humans have to be better at understanding right. causation because machines are generally not going to be able to tell you that well unless you do experimentation or something like that, right? So. Um, I don't know if I agree with them, like I think the goal should be trying to find more ways to understand causation, you know, from a machine.
0: I think so because I mean it feels like, you know, causation isn't a human quantity, it's actually something scientific, it's just that you know, it's, it's correlation with, with, with a greater, yeah, but result, I think greater what, resolution. I, I, I think what
1: he's trying to say, and I agree with him here, is that like, if you have two people for a job, right, and one is a, you know, chemistry PhD the other is a computer science PhD, one is going to understand how to, you know, figure out causation better than the other one, Yeah. right? And part of that idea of being able to ask like scientific questions of the data is around like, does this, does this, is there, you know, a, a reason that this, these numbers correlate, like from a causal standpoint, do, do we believe that like, it makes sense that these should be correlating and is there like a causal reason that this would happen
0: this is really important as we start to rely on data and things like you know sentencing in the criminal justice system because you know you can get yourself into a lot of hot water if you are just building systems which make impact on people's lives based on things that are not truly causative yeah well, the, the
1: I think the problem with the criminal justice system is it's binary, right? Yeah. So you're either in jail or you're not. You you can't basically say like there's 70% chance that you're in jail, so you only spend 70% of your time in jail and 30% not, <laughs> right? But that would make mathematically, a lot, I mean these, there the guy that does this stuff, uh, a lot of this stuff down at Stanford. I think his name's Ron Howard.
0: Yeah.
1: He uh, I think he talks a lot about how you can't use data and decisions to make like these fundamental life decisions where the framework changes in your life based on the decision you make. Um, and I don't fully understand what that means, but I think, <laughs> but I, but I think generally it's, it's hard to use data for these very binary decisions that are so, you know.
0: Life or death. Yeah. So it feels like you still have quite a bit of hope and optimism for people sticking around past the algorithms a little bit longer. So I guess to think of you know about that in five or ten years, what what do you think a really smart executive or leader in a, in a in a data-driven company, what kind of person are they? Like, if you're going to hire someone, what what would you be looking for?
1: Like at what level, like to run analytics or to be like a COO that happens to like be?
0: Well, if there's a difference either.
1: Um, I mean, I think like. I always say this, like, people that have, like, done real science or studied real science are people that I'm much more interested in, uh, because they, they
0: know how to, like... Right, so this would be the head of analytics, right, a real scientist. Yeah, I think, so. well,
1: I think it's hard, though, because, like, at some level, like, the strength or the, the value of that person at that level is being able to actually, like, communicate well and get people like excited like to build influence and to get people like that head of you know head of analytics or head of data science how you're going to help your team the most is by creating great relationships around the organization where people want to work with your team right where people want to like use the data because if you are like narrative skills yeah or if you are just i don't even know if it's narrative skills as much as it's just like like relationship building where people want to work with you right
0: And and if you are hiring the COO role, like somebody who's like someone who's not actually in the data business, but who's got who's leveraging those technologies.
1: Yeah. Um, I just I would just want to make sure that they they want it to be data driven. They want that they came from a place where they like believed in data. um, And they, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't make decisions counter to data just because they have like a hunch.
0: So maybe we should use blackjack as a screening technique in interviews. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a horrible it's not a horrible concept, right? Is to try to get people to be um, data driven or to understand how data driven they are in in a discipline or in a scenario that's out of their normal, you know. Yeah, I mean, like, there's lots of like thoughts that people want to play poker with someone before they you know hire them or not. I mean, I think I could tell a lot about someone by that. Then I mean, but for me, like, it's more. It's more understanding, like, the process by how someone makes decisions, you know, and if, if data isn't, like, a big piece of that, like, or at least a piece of it, then that's a problem.
0: Well, Jeff, it was great hanging out. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.